0: Welcome to the 325th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Susan Allott, author of the debut novel, The Silence. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Susan Allott. Allott's debut novel, The Silence, was recently published. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me on. If someone listening hasn't heard about the Silence yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: Ah, uh, I would describe it as a mystery thriller. Um, I've had it described lots of ways, actually. I think it might straddle a, a few genres, but I didn't. I generally refer to it as a mystery, um, and it's about it's set. It's set largely in Australia. And it's about a woman who goes back to Sydney after living in London for 10 years because her father has been implicated in the um, disappearance of a woman who was their neighbour when um, the protagonist, Isla, was a child. So it's about her um, trying to clear her father's name and unwittingly unearthing all sorts of secrets in the process, um, some of which go right back into Australia's colonial history.
0: And so do you remember the original idea that led you to write the novel?
1: I do. I mean, I I have to say it was a really long time ago. I wrote a short story um, about a, a child called Ila. It was written from her point of view. And she was watching her mum pack a suitcase, and she didn't know where her mum was going or why, and she also didn't know if her mum was going to take her with her. And um, I remember my tutor I had this creative writing tutor at the time, and she said, "That's great, you know, it's what's well written. Maybe you need to develop a, a bit of a sense of place." <laughs> um, and I kind of, you know, left it for a while. Occasionally tried to go back to it, um, and then eventually decided to set it in Australia and it became um, I developed this this character of Louisa as the woman who was leaving Australia because the kind of question around that short story was where was she going and why so she was leaving Australia because she was homesick and she wanted to go back to the UK so that was the seed of my story and that was something that I'd been through myself having been a homesick expat in Sydney for a couple of years so it started there
0: Well, I know The Silence features multiple timelines, including uh, sections set in 1967. Did you have those different timelines planned when you first started writing the novel?
1: I had no plan whatsoever when I started writing. I don't recommend that (laughs) to anyone Uh who's thinking about starting. But um, I I really um, wanted to be a writer since, God knows, as long as I can remember, but was held back by this um, feeling that I needed to have an idea and and a big grand plan of what I was going to write about. Um, And so eventually I just decided to start writing and and see what developed from it. Um, So when I started, all I had was was these two characters, Ilo and her mum, and I knew That it was set in Australia and it was about a woman who was going home from Australia and that was literally all I knew and um, so I I thought it was going to be largely set in England when Louisa gets back to England but over the years these Australian characters in their Australian setting just took over um, and it ended up being a book about Isla going back to Australia rather than her mum leaving
0: And so, what are your earliest memories of reading and books?
1: Um, I think I was always a big reader. Um, And my parents were too. And so, they introduced me to lots of books, probably books that um, maybe were a little bit, I was a bit young for them. But they sort of encouraged me to read beyond my age group, I think. So, for example, I do remember reading all of the Judy Bloom books whilst I was at primary school, including that one, which is um, about a love affair forever, um, which most people read as as teenagers. Um, I read that when I was nine. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I I know I loved all of those. I loved the Enid Blytons, all all of that stuff, too. Um, And then I went on and did English literature at university. And um yeah I've I've just always been a bookworm really.
0: And you said you always wanted to be a writer before you wrote your first novel The Silence. Were you writing mm-hmm. short stories or were you what were you doing?
1: I think um where it started was at school. Um creative writing was part of the curriculum up to GCSE level, which is the exams in the UK that you take when you're 16 and so i was i was doing creative writing constantly as part of my schoolwork and um it was the part of school that i really loved and kind of was you know i knew, I knew that i was quite good at it um so i just always thought i'm i'm going to be a writer when i'm older um and then to my surprise when i uh, went to college to do a level english i discovered that you don't do creative writing at a level you you just read other people's books and write about them and I was quite disappointed um <laughs> to to figure that out and again at, at degree level you you just read other people's books so I became quite rusty I stopped writing creatively for quite a few years and started to wonder if I would ever be able to pick that back up until at some point in my late 20s, I just thought I can't put this off anymore. And that's when I enrolled on the creative writing course where I wrote that short story and didn't look back really after that.
0: And, and did you take other courses and what were those like?
1: I, I've done loads of creative writing courses actually. I love them. Um, one that, one that um, really helped me a lot um, was an Arven uh, retreat. This Arvin is an organisation, it's a charity which operates in the UK, where you can go and spend a week in a really remote, remote uh, location where there's kind of no Wi-Fi, and you and you have um, a creative writing tutor who you meet with every day and and um, works with you to improve your writing. And um, yeah, I did one of those, and really, I just will never forget the um, advice and guidance I got on that course. It it took me from thinking I'm never going to be able to do this to having a draft written a year later. So um, that was fantastic. I think that one just really got me at the right time. Um, I've also done the Faber Academy course, which is um, quite a famous one in the UK. It it lasts for six months. And um, at the end of it, you get to meet with literary agents um, so you stand up and it's absolutely terrifying. You stand up in front of a group of people and read, um, I think you only read for two minutes or something, but it feels like a, an hour and, wow. uh, you know, everyone does that one by one. And then at the end of it, there's wine and nibbles and you, you stand there with your writing buddies, hoping that one of these agents might stalk up to you with a business card. Um, yeah. And one awful. of them did luckily so it was worth it
0: but yeah absolutely terrifying so so what was the path to publication like for the silence which is your debut novel
1: um i after i finished that faber academy course i worked on my novel for about another year and then i submitted it to a group of agents and um they all asked for the full manuscript which is good it's a um, a reason to celebrate if if that happens um, so I signed with my agent Nicola Barr at the bent agency I think at the end of I might have this wrong but I think it was some, it was in 2018 and um, she submitted it we worked together on it for for a few rounds of edits and then she submitted it um, in 2019 and we had interest from Harper Collins within within 24 hours, which was amazing. Wow. And then um, the, another publisher wanted it, and and so they had a little bit of a um, kind of auction between the two of them, and Harper won that.
0: Wow, that's a great story.
1: It was yeah, it was all very exciting.
0: <laughs> so the, the silence you said was your is your first novel, and as you mentioned earlier, you started it really with no plan um Mm. were there things that you learned along the way about writing a novel
1: oh totally i learned to write whilst i was writing it and made all my mistakes on it um so i like for example i remember spending god knows months and months and months you know um polishing the first chapter before I moved on to the second chapter and of course that chapter has long since been deleted. Um, I now know that the best thing to do is to write a fairly scrappy first draft and not worry too much about whether the sentences are beautiful. Um, So I I took much too long over the first draft um, and probably all the subsequent drafts and I also very late discovered books um which help you to understand how to structure a novel so that it's paced well and has suspense and jeopardy and keeps people wanting to turn the pages for for a really long time I had a a well-written story that didn't quite feel like a novel and um so so I eventually learned all of those um all of those tricks around how to, to structure a book, which actually come from screenwriting. Um, there's a, a book I'm looking at on my shelf called Story by Robert McKee, which was very helpful. Um, and, of course, there are lots more. But It's all about how to build in that that feeling of, um, you know, get, getting your hook in at the right place, getting your midpoint at the right place. And then you've got to, to build in a, a point at which you're, protagonist has their darkest hour and then you drag them back out of it and I, honestly i wish i'd found all of that stuff much sooner it was so
2: helpful you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours activities excursions and more in one place
1: I have, and um, I'm at the fairly early stages of my second mm-hmm. book now, and it's really very different this time around. Uh, not that I feel like I know what I'm doing um, at all. It's, not, it's still not easy, but um, I have learned so much from the first time around.
0: And so what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels?
1: Um well, I mean, I, I'll go back to that um, course that I did several years ago now, the Arven Retreat, where um, the tutor said to me and to all of us as a group, you don't treat your work in progress like um, like you're cooking something on, on the stove um, and you're trying to make it rich and delicious. You know, you've, you've got to keep it simmering and don't ever let it go cold. Um and so that metaphor is quite helpful for me as a someone who likes to cook. But basically what it means is you have to write a little bit every day. And what the mistake I'd been making prior to that was thinking that I had to clear a whole day of my life um, and sit down with my laptop and write, you know, and, and then I could only manage to do that once a month. And so by the time I opened the laptop again, I had no idea what where I was going with it. And it seemed ridiculous. And I ended up deleting it usually. So so even if some days you can only look at it for 10 minutes whilst you're doing something else, you should try and do that every day. And then if you obviously if you can clear a day, that's great. But the most important thing is to, to try and um, do a sort of little and often approach. So that was so helpful to me. Um, and also that thing about just don't over polish your first draft. It's more important to keep moving forward with it and build momentum. Um, you know, rather than there's such a temptation to, to just work on the same paragraph f- for a week, <laughs> because you don't know what's going to happen next. I think is the reason we do that. So yeah, just keep moving forward a little bit every day.
0: So with the second novel, I'm curious: are you doing more planning, or are you still writing more organically?
1: I I do have a plan this time around, um, but I also know that I will probably almost certainly deviate from it. Um, but I use a program called Scrivener now where I um have it all mapped out. It looks like a, a kind of chalkboard or a cork board even. Um and you know I can I can see um my characters are colour coded, I can see where the midpoint comes in. So I'm much more structured about it now, which makes the whole thing feel feel more manageable.
0: Yeah. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Um I just finished reading a book of short stories um, which are kind of working for me at the moment. This whole lockdown thing is it's quite – sometimes it, it can hit your concentration a bit. Um, Curtis Sittenfeld, they were called You Think It, I'll Say It. And I thought her writing was very fresh and um, sharp and funny and clever. And she's um, got a new book out now called Rodham, so I'm going to be looking out for that. <laughs> Um, and another one that I read that was great was um, a book written and set in the 70s in Australia called Monkey Grip by Helen Garner I'm a big fan of Australian fiction so um, I really enjoyed that Um, so interesting to read a book that's written and set at at the same time if that makes sense quite often you read books that are set in the past but she was writing about her own experience of being a young woman in Australia in the 70s and she's kind of got this feminist ideology but she's also in love with this guy and those two things are clashing in her life um so that was that was a beautifully well written book I just Australian fiction really Tim Winton um Evie Wilde who's British but she writes about Australia she's a beautiful writer I could go on. Do you want me to go on or so is When
0: you when you, were, <laughs> when you were working on The Silence, were there uh, novelists or specific novels that you kind of looked to, not necessarily to, to to mimic, but just in terms of their general feel and style?
1: Yeah, I mean, a book that had quite a big influence on me is a book called The Slap by Christos Tokas. Um, he's an Australian writer and the book set in Melbourne, it's about a man who slaps a child at a family barbecue and, um, they kind of fall out from that and each chapter with a different point of view. Um, I think it's an extraordinary exercise in empathy. Um, he is brilliant at getting right under a character's skin so that you are in their head and you utterly see the world from their perspective um and it helps you to realize that you can't it's very difficult to um to feel badly towards somebody if if you've been inside their head for a while and you might you might not sympathize with that character particularly but you do empathize with them um and so i'm not saying that i pulled it off as spectacularly as he did but i i did try to use some of those techniques in the silence um, I stopped myself from rereading it. I, I wondered if I should, but then I thought, no, I don't want to um, be too influenced by it. I've got to find my own way, but it stayed with me.
0: Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and the silence?
1: Um, well, I've got a website, which is Um It's A-double-L-O-double-T, my surname. So that's probably quite a good place to start. And all my social media links are on there. But I am on Twitter, at Susan Allott, and I'm on um, Instagram and Facebook, too.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Susan Allott. Susan's debut novel, The Silence, is available now. So go buy a copy. And Susan, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thank you. It's been great.
0: Now, stay tuned for a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Silence by Susan Allott. Narrated by Mel Stewart, available wherever audiobooks are sold.
4: In a basement flat in Hackney, the telephone rings. It's two in the morning. Isla Green stands in the hallway, pyjamaed, barely awake. She is entirely sober. A good thing, if a little fragile, a little surprising. No tide of shame waits for her no bloom of pain. She feels clean in her skin, like a schoolgirl. She can taste toothpaste in her throat. On the third ring, she reaches for the receiver. It's Dom's voice she will hear if the answerphone picks up, and his voice will set her back. It's three months since he left, and every day she means to wipe the message. She lifts it to her ear just in time. Hello? It takes her a second to place him. Dad? I didn't wake you, did I? She doesn't know why she's gripping the receiver. Why a trill of fear has sounded in her head. It's good to hear her dad's voice, which is more Australian than her own these days, He's got the time difference wrong, that's all. At the end of the street, a police siren starts its upward loop and cuts out. Its blue light flashes silently. What time is it there? I don't know. She stretches her free arm above her head, arching her back. In the eight weeks and three days since her last drink, She has been sleeping like the dead. Shall I call back later? It's fine. Is everything okay? I wanted to talk to you, he says. Your mother doesn't know I'm calling. She went into town. She sits down on the carpet. This is the thing she couldn't put her finger on, that she should have known was wrong from the start. Her dad hasn't called her in the decade she's lived in London. It's her mum who makes the phone calls, leaves messages on the answer phone. Her dad writes letters. He hates the phone. What is it? I didn't want you to hear it from your mother. She hasn't taken it well. I wanted to tell you myself. She drops her head between her knees. She thinks, if he's going to die, I'll need a drink. Cold, practical thoughts. She will finish this call and she will put her clothes on. There's an all-night takeaway at Clapton Pond where they sell six packs of beer under the counter. The police came to see me, he says. The police? They're looking for a woman I used to know. Isla lifts her head. She's sweating. She runs her hand through her damp hair. What woman? She was a neighbour of ours, back when we first moved to Sydney. You wouldn't remember. He coughs. It looks like she's been missing a long time. Nobody's seen her in... Thirty years. The police car crawls past outside, swinging its blue light across the walls. What's this got to do with you? The police think her disappearance is suspicious, he says. They think I was the last person to see her before she went missing. And were you? She tries to sound calm. Were you the last person to see her? I can't have been. She moved away with her husband. I told them there must be some mistake. He lights a cigarette, exhales. She thinks of Dom, smiling behind a flame. Is she dead? They think she must be.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.